This is Dave Green at East Line Studio, where we produce The Historian's Podcasts. Bob Cudmore will have the latest edition of The Historian's in just a few seconds. The Historian's Podcasts depend on your donations to continue. You may donate online at GoFundMe.com slash The Historian's or send a check to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. The Historians is also heard weekly on RISE, WMHT's radio service for the blind and print disabled, and on SoundCloud, search East Line Studio. And now, on with the show. This is Bob Cudmore. You're listening to The Historians Podcast. We welcome Paul Grandal, award-winning journalist from the Albany Times Union, also a multiple published author. How you doing, Paul? I'm doing good. Good to talk to you again, Bob. Good to talk to you again. We had you on some time back, and we mainly focused on the city of Albany and the Democratic machine, if you will, or the Democratic organization. Uh, But Paul Grandal uh, does a lot of stories for the paper and has written a number of books, and one I'd heard of, but I didn't know you were involved in it. Uh, it has to do with a with a gentleman that I uh, had the good fortune to know uh, back in the 1980s and uh, 90s when I was working at WGY. This real big boffo PR guy, Ed Louie. Uh, what 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 was Ed Louie's book? Ed Louie's book uh, is called A Wild Ride: Bears, Babes, and Marketing to the Max. And he contacted me and uh, asked if I would help him. Um, Ed uh, has a million stories, but they're mostly in his head. He didn't put them on paper. And he actually started at the Times Union, was in advertising, and uh, was a sports reporter for a time. And uh, he's had an amazing career, 40-plus years in PR, and, and worked with all kinds of people from Mary Lou Whitney and and uh, Naira with all the horse people and also uh, a lot of different celebrities like Paul Newman and and uh, Merv Griffin and, and other people, and he tells some, some pretty hilarious stories in the book. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, the title, what, what, where would the bears come in? What bears? Well, the bears, uh, I'm, I'm looking at the book, the cover is a picture of a bear in a convertible with Ed driving, and the bear is kind of hanging out in the back seat. Ed <laughs> was... Uh, kind of the first to bring in these kind of interesting uh, events to get attention. I mean, I'm talking back in the 50s, 60s, 70s. He would bring uh, trained bears, uh, first of all, to hawk the Times Union and Knickerbocker News in downtown Albany, but also <laughs> at other events. And he also became the PR person for Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey, when it came through. And he, he loved, you know, Lions, tigers, and bears, and, and uh, drawing some attention that way. And, and the babes came in. He also, aside from animals, liked to, you know, hire beautiful, buxom young women in bikinis to also mm-hmm. <clears throat> promote his events. You know. Yeah. Well, you're really bringing me back to some of the things I remember doing. It uh, must have been when he was the PR guy for the circus. That I did the nighttime talk show. We did circus play-by-play. <laughs> including something I really didn't enjoy at the time, but got to admit it was a good stunt. It was after the circus, some of the performers came up to our broadcast location, including a bunch of clowns who, of course, hit me in the face with a pie. <laughs> yeah, uh, and he could also laugh at himself. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm just getting over a cold, but there's a great story when he was promoting. He got to know Charlie Wood early on and helped promote Great Escape before it was when it was even Storytown. Mm-hmm. And... um 
he hired this uh, guy who claimed to be a great Houdini sort of escape artist, and uh, he invited all the press, and, and everyone was excited. They went out in boats, and this guy got in, into a, sort of a, a, a box and, and were supposedly lowering it down into the depths of Lake George, and he would, would break free miraculously. And turned out the, the, the thing never really sank, and they could see it was all rigged, and there was a trap door and everything, <laughs> and everyone was watching it. And uh, it was pretty funny the way Ed tells some of these stories where he can laugh at himself, you and, know, and some of the animals got loose and et cetera, et cetera. Well, I hate to bring it up because I'm quite sure this is Ed Louie, but one year he had members of the media ride donkeys on the opening day of the track, or not the opening day, but that Sunday before it really opens. Yeah. And, uh, of course, I'm a chicken. My wife was alive at the time. She was much more adventurous. She said, I'll do it. So she did it, <laughs> and and she wasn't the only one. I mean, you might imagine these donkeys, uh, they were, when they broke from the gate, they bucked everybody off. Yeah. I mean, he got, you know, the jockeys to do foot races. He, he was a great, um, he had great ideas, kind of, zany ideas, things that probably have fallen out of favor a bit in PR, but at the time they were cutting edge, and you always knew if Ed Louie was putting something on show up, because it would be you know, uh, out of the box and, and uh, you know off the wall, and, and his his motto in life and in his professional career was, if it's not fun, don't do it. Uh. I mean, Ed would always be laughing He'd always be the life of the party, and he brought that kind of energy to his PR career. And he's, he's just a great, colorful character. And for the long uh, time, I know he worked with his wife, Maureen. Right. Right. And I've, the first time I remember them was when I first uh, came to the area to do the WGY job. And it was just after their – apparently they had done some of the publicity for the Olympics where yeah. we had the big hockey victory. We, we go into a lot of that in the book. He tells great stories about that. I mean – they were up against some of the biggest firms in the country, and Ed just kind of threw his name in, sort of on a lark. And he's so persuasive; he's a real talker, and and uh, you know can can sort of uh, represent himself and sell himself. and And he got the contract, and then it was now what do we do? But they they really uh, were there through all the transportation difficulties, and and uh, obviously there for the great you know, the great hockey game, America beating Russia, and then they became the PR people for a lot of the professional figure skaters afterwards who went out on the Campbell's uh, circuit. Mm-hmm. So so that was really their big break in 1980, and that, that launched Ed and his firm, Ed Louie Associates, and uh, a lot of work flowed from that. And they did a lot of the shows, uh, like the home show and the food right. show and the thing like that. Yeah, that was his connection to the Times Union uh, Still, well, he's really retired. He's he's not in great health right now, and um, you know he's kind of stepped back from that. But for decades, I've been at the Times Union for 30 years. He always ran the home show and the outdoor show, and it was a joint mm. production with the Times Union because he had started those 40 years earlier or so when he was with Times Union advertising and promotion. So he's had a long association. With the Times Union, he's a good friend with our publisher, George Hurst, who, who t- shares a few stories in the book as well. Yeah, uh, and I think his firm is still in business, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah he uh, sold to Mark Bardak and um, still going, and Mark still represents uh, the track and Naira and some of the other uh, organizations that, that Ed did. I mean, Ed had all a lot of the big accounts from Fryhoffers to Price Chopper to SPAC mm-hmm. to Naira. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of those are still with uh, Mark Bardak, who still keeps the Louis Associates name. And the book is called uh, a, a Wild, Wild Ride. 
by Ed Louie and Paul Grandal. Well, uh, something completely different. You also have uh, done a book on Albany uh, Rural Cemetery and the, the history of that uh, facility. From my um, writing about the Amsterdam area, I'm familiar with the, the concept of a rural cemetery, I think, but maybe you can explain it to us. Yeah, this was a, a movement uh, in America, and the one in Albany, Albany Rural Cemetery, which is actually in Manans, out Broadway, just north of Albany. Um, it was one of the, the second or third earliest in the country. The first would be in uh, Mount Auburn in Cambridge, just outside of Boston and Massachusetts. But this was a uh, sort of a response to a feeling in Albany and, and other parts of the country that we weren't very doing very well um, commemorating and serving people who had died. Up to this point, people were kind of stacked in, in small little uh, urban cemeteries which were behind churches and essentially they ran out of space they'd, they'd put people two and three uh, burials high and in the spring often with flooding in the downtown areas some of those coffins and bodies would be disturbed there was concerns about public health drawing water mm. from areas near these uh, urban cemeteries so the, the stopgap move was to uh, remove and reinter a lot of the uh, couple thousand coffins and remains up at Washington Park when that was, this was pre-Civil War, it was a parade, parade ground, an area where militias and things trained, and there was a cemetery there. And then after Albany Rural was uh, established in 1841 on the outskirts of town, they moved those bodies out of the city because of all those public health concerns. But even more than that, it was a feeling that you can sort of commune with and spend time with and honor your dead in these park-like settings. So what grew out of the rural cemetery movement were the great urban parks, Central Park in New York mm -hmm. City, Washington Park in Albany. They were these beautifully landscaped with sort of great monuments and, and beautiful architecture and benches and ponds and streams and trails where, where people could take a break from the noisy, dirty, industrial, urban setting. Mm. And and Albany Rural Cemetery is, is just spectacular. 467 acres, over 135,000 people buried there. Really? Um, it's on the National Register of Historic Places. And it's got some of the finest monumental sculptures uh, in the capital region. Mm. And there's a former president buried there. Yeah, Chester Arthur. People come from all over the country to see his uh, really spectacular uh, black onyx sarcophagus. And once a year, uh, the White House, uh, on October 5th, the anniversary of his, uh, of his death, <clears throat> sends a wreath, and there's a special color guard and things, and they do this for all the presidents who mm. are buried around the country. And there's a ceremony for Chester Arthur. And uh, his presidency is often criticized as... Not particularly historical or important, but he is our homegrown, you know, person. His wife's family was from here. He's buried in his, his wife's family's plot, and he was a Union College graduate. So what? Chester Arthur is uh, probably the most visited grave among those 140,000-plus graves. That's something. I, I know that um, it's an interesting point you make that parks like Central Park in New York City or in other other parks are kind of like rural cemeteries but without the headstones. Exactly. But, exactly. But when you uh, 
you spend time at Albany Rural Cemetery, and, and the best part about this book was I, I sort of tapped into the expertise of at least a dozen or 15 people who know different facets of it, like Mark Bodner knows the Civil War uh, sites better than anyone else around here. I know he's writing a book about it. He's identified over 1,100 Civil War veterans in Albany Rural. Now, some are sprinkled throughout, but there's also a, a Civil War burial site where there's dozens and dozens of Civil War soldiers. And when he tells some of these stories, uh, you know, some prominent Civil War, uh, <clears throat> you know, for the Union Army, but also some sort of unknown and sad, tragic stories, it's very moving. And, and when you also go through the cemetery, you can see, you know, the influenza epidemic of 1918. You can mm -hmm. see yellow fever. You can see uh, all the kind of waves of um, uh, public health epidemics and calamities that this country has come through, you know, through the local cemetery here. And it's, it's a pretty moving thing. It's, it's where a lot of uh, historians and genealogists come because they have, ever since 1841 when it was founded, they have a card catalog system, like the old card catalogs at mm -hmm. public libraries, and it fills this whole room in this beautiful antique little uh, office uh, on the site. And uh, in the last couple of years, that's been digitized through Ancestry.com, mm. and you can go online now and, and and research it online. I still love going to look at the uh, the actual cards. That's where I did a lot of research mm. on the Corning family, for instance. Five mm. generations of their family are buried in the same plot there, and each of these cards has some interesting little, you know, biographical and genealogical detail. Mm -hmm. I know that uh, the rural cemetery I'm familiar with in my hometown of Amsterdam, Green Hill, has you know had tough times over the years. You know, keeping things together financially. Right. Is that true at Albany Rural? Or, or that no? is true. I mean, they have a small endowment, but it's always a struggle because you know 467 acres. And and uh, what's interesting about this property, it's divided by two streams with deep ravines. And uh, there's challenges to mowing it and maintaining it and taking down dead trees, etc. So part of this book project was to remind people of, of what a cultural gem it is and also to uh, help raise funds for its uh, you know, preservation and upkeep. And it's been doing that. The, the book is a, a benefit project for the cemetery and also for our Times Union Hope Fund, which is our charity at the newspaper. We send disadvantaged youngsters uh, grade school, middle school, up to high school, to after school and summer camp programs. And this book, every copy sold, money mm -hmm. goes to that. So it was a good project. And the book is called These Exalted Acres? Yeah, it's called These Exalted Acres, Unlocking the Secrets of Albany Rural Cemetery. We're talking with Paul Grandal, award-winning journalist at the Albany Times Union, talking with him about the many books that he's uh, put out. And one that you're working on now has to do with the late uh, CBS television uh, journalist Andy Rooney, who had uh, definite ties to our area. Uh, how, how's that going? Yeah, it's going well. Um, I'm under contract for SUNY Press, and I'm deep into the writing and the research. Uh, Andy Rooney uh, was somebody in my 30 years at the Times Union that I interviewed several times. I spent a whole day with him at, at his family uh summer getaway in Rensselaerville and um, interviewed him on several occasions and a, a great writer and a real character and people really just think of him 
as a 60 Minutes commentator, the great curmudgeon who had mm-hmm. these opinions and everybody thought he was cranky and, and <laughs> things. And But there's a real interesting story to him. I mean, he was born in Albany, raised in Albany, but he also, uh, I found out in my research, he, he never really copped to this, although he was he could be self-deprecating. He he was held back and flunked a grade at Albany Academy. He was a poor student, uh, almost didn't get into Colgate University. In his junior year at Colgate, he's drafted and uh, is kind of a foul up in the Army, um, kind of gets bumped out of artillery training because he's kind of talks back and he's a bit mouthy and, and uh, kind of a smart aleck. And he ends up, he can type and uh, he's, he's well-educated and and uh, he can write a little bit, so he ends up on the Stars and Stripes, the Army newspaper, and, th- and that launched his career. He was working and reporting from the front lines, flying on bombing missions alongside people like um, Walter Cronkite, who became his lifelong friend, who was a reporter for United Press International at the time. He worked, mm. Rooney worked alongside Ernie Pyle, A.J. Liebling, the great New Yorker mm-hmm. writer, um, and really... Uh, the best journalist in the world, and here's a 23-year-old kind of smart aleck kid, and all of a sudden, he became a man, and he became a great writer at World War II, and uh, his career, you know, took off after that. After the war, I mean, did he go to CBS right away, or did Well, he really, he struggled. It was interesting. He had actually published, he teamed up with the uh, an editor at Stars and Stripes named Bud Hutton, an older, more experienced newspaper man. He'd been at the Buffalo News. He'd been at other papers. And they actually wrote two books together, one on called Air Gunner about the uh, B-17, B-24 crews that they flew with, and then one called uh, about the history of the Stars and Stripes. And then they actually got a movie deal, and they made good money, and they sent them both out to Hollywood, and they wrote a script. And nothing came of it, but uh, they actually did one more book together. So they did three books, and here's Rooney in his mid-20s at that point, comes back to Albany. He's an author, the local paper, the Knickerbocker News, where he was a copy boy, um, writes these glowing stories. And then I went through his correspondence, and he couldn't get a job. He couldn't. The Knickerbocker News turned him down. There were no jobs around here in Albany, so... He made his way down to New York City and kind of hustled, and his first real breakthrough was getting hired to write for the Arthur, Arthur Godfrey um, live radio show. Really? Yeah, and uh, he's got some great stuff on Godfrey, who was a very difficult human being. And, yeah, he, um, he certainly seemed it on his show. I always really thought that. difficult. Rooney, at one point, was going to write sort of a tell-all biography of him, and, and he's got all his notes. So I went through, I've been out um, at the University of Texas at Austin where all of Rooney's papers are and there's 70 boxes or something and they're there because his friend Walter Cronkite was a University of Texas at Austin graduate. He brought his papers there first and then he convinced all his 60 Minutes and and CBS colleagues so Safer's uh, Morley Safer, Harry Reasoner, Andy Rooney, others are, are all located there so it's a treat to go through all that material and and Andy Rooney never disappointed. His letters are so hilarious, but also toxic. I mean, he wrote letters to the president of the CBS of CBS News over and over, really blistering, and he got away with it because he had millions of fans and he was a huge. I mean, at one point, almost every newspaper in America, over three thousand papers, syndicated him twice a week. He was on. 
he was the most popular person on 60 Minutes, which had over 20 million viewers. So this guy was was huge. Yeah. And he did it by by writing simply, you know, 700 words, two minutes, simple declarative sentences. But he sort of tapped into that every man, and he understood to write about things that that all Americans were feeling, and he did it in a brilliant way. And he sustained that career for a long time. I mean, 40 years on 60 Minutes, and 40 years plus writing his newspaper column. Quite quite a Wait quite a, a workman. I, I met him one, once. Yeah, I hesitate, well, I don't hesitate to bring it up. You know, I'm that kind of a person. But he, <laughs> he was, I, I was chosen somehow, not by him, to moderate a panel that he was on up uh, in Rensselaerville at that uh, what is the think tank they have. Yeah, yeah, like the Institute. And yeah. I don't even remember who else was on the panel. You know, you have Andy Rooney. What else do you need? Right. But there were other people, and they were talking about the state of journalism, and this was somewhere in the 1980s. And it was a tough night, and uh, people just blah 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 blah. And he was he was very cutting when he was on. So at some point, I just walked out of the room, and or backed out of the room. And he just thought that was great. He wrote about it in his column. He said, "This <laughs> poor guy's trying to get these people to shut up. Nobody shut up." And he walked yeah. out of the room. But he, then I, 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 as I often do, I went too far. I, I sent, I sent him a message and something like, "It's like, no, you, I mean, you had your two minutes here. That's you know, move on." Yeah, man. Oh, he, he could. Uh, I mean, I have so many stories. Uh, great, great loyalty to people, but he could also be a mean sob. Um, you know, he, he could be cutting, and uh, some of my favorites were he had this policy. I mean, many writers I know shared this story about approaching him for a blurb on a book mm-hmm. and getting shot down in the, in the nastiest way, and he was capable of that as well. So he, he's an interesting, complex person, and uh, his, his letters are, are worth the price of admission. I mean, he whenever he wrote, and I got several letters from him, Mostly, mostly good, but a couple blisters. Um, he he could just lay it out in right. <laughs> in unvarnished vernacular, <laughs> to uh, use a phrase. Yeah, he he also was famous for uh, causing a scene in restaurants when you know his dish wasn't cooked to his, his specifications. And yeah, he was he was a pretty interesting guy. Also, I had the opportunity to work with his daughter Emily. Uh, yeah. over in Pittsfield, Mass. We actually worked at different radio stations, and she did very well in media, didn't yeah. she? Yeah, she's, uh, I mean, his whole his whole family, very talented and accomplished. Uh, she just recently uh, retired WGBH in Boston for many years doing That's public right. affairs and other yep. shows. His son, Brian, was a longtime correspondent with uh, the major networks, uh, CBS, ABC, for a while, with Al Jazeera. I think he's given that up, and his other uh, two daughters have have had professional careers, not in the media, but one is a photographer and one in medicine. And, um, yeah, he's he's an interesting guy, and he's a, you know, real homegrown Albany person and that that's how I got interested in him and um enjoying trying to capture his life it's it's a it's a lot to put into one book but I'm having some fun we're talking with Paul Grandal we just have a few minutes left but I wanted to bring up another a person a court reporter uh, that you've written about uh, for the Times Union in Albany uh, Shirley Armstrong yeah Shirley a great colleague I came to the paper in 1984 and she had already been there uh, quite a while uh, I've interviewed 
you know, judges, uh, the highest court, court of appeals, and, and uh, many of them said essentially the same thing, that, that Shirley was smarter than most lawyers we get around here. I mean, she knew the law and understood it and could write about it for a newspaper audience, a general newspaper audience. I mean, when I first started in the business, they often said, you know, I know you got your literature degree and your master's degree and your fancy college stuff, but we write for eighth grade average reader. Hmm. And that always stuck with me because we can't forget that, you know, a lot of people are working class, blue collar, and that's who picks up and, and sustains an, an increasingly difficult business newspapers and surely could break it down. And there's nothing worse than reading, you know, uh, legalese. It's impenetrable. And she could read these really complicated legal briefs and, and cases and, and write it in a compelling, readable, understandable way for a general audience. And that that's really hard to do. Mm. How did she get into that? Was there, was there any difficulty for her being a, a, a woman doing this? Yeah, kind of definitely. I mean, she was one of the first women to have that position, and, and she was early on um, one of the early. I mean, I think of her, I think of Roberta Smith, who was a photojournalist for us. Uh, I think of Carol DeMar, mm-hmm. uh, who's retired. Shirley Armstrong, unfortunately, passed away, um, I forget now, over a year ago. But these were pioneering women. Um, also, Joanne Krupe, who was our uh, our managing editor. Um, these were women that got into what was essentially a, a, a man's club and sort of a profane, hard-drinking one at that. And I can imagine, and I've heard stories, and they've told me stories, that it was not easy as a woman woman coming into the newspaper business in that era. But, but I would put you know, Shirley Armstrong and Carol DeMar, for that matter, against any reporter. They would stand toe-to-toe with politicians. They would not take any BS. They would not let them off the hook. They would ask tough questions. They'd also be fair, but they were fearless, both both of them. And they were really great friends. Shirley had a place on Lake George, and Carol would, would go there a lot and spend time with her. Do, do you recall any of the cases that Shirley Armstrong covered? Oh, man, I mean... Actually, Carol DeMar kind of took over for her after Shirley retired, but any of the major murder cases and, and, uh, you know, gruesome triple homicides, I'm thinking like Lemuel Smith and and also, you know, much more esoteric uh, legal issues and court of appeals and things. She really was... uh, one of a kind, and and she's missed. I I used to love when she came into the the newsroom. I wrote her obituary, and um, she had she always had her hair up in a bun. She was very stylish. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. She always had high heels, and she would clop down the hallway. And um, you know, you always knew when Shirley was coming, and it would be fun to kind of catch up with her because she worked out of the the uh, court downtown. I didn't see her all the time, but I mean, I was lucky to come. I think in the golden age of newspapers, the early 80s, and and uh, to work alongside and learn from these people. I'm not a journalist by trade. I'm a English literature major, and, and to watch these great, skilled, uh, you know, craftswomen and craftsmen working the craft and kind of picking it up by observation. And I think there's really no substitute for hard work and and shoe leather and um, 
you know, pursuing the story and not giving up. Mm-hmm. Is um, this a book that you've written about Shirley Armstrong? No, I, I just uh, wrote her obituary for the newspaper, and um, she's one of the, you know, one of the late greats who I had the privilege of working at at the Times Union, and, um, you know, a lot of people told some wonderful stories at her retirement dinner, which I went to, but also told them to me for her obituary, and, and that's in our Times Union archives. Well, I'm sure they'll be writing about you too, Paul. I don't know. You, you spend 30 years there, you know, and, and uh, you're sort of happy to still have a warm seat when you show up. Um, the newspaper has been in decline for quite a while. We're working as hard as we can to keep it viable and trying to move into digital and new media. And I mean, I'm I'm spending a lot of time now doing tweets and, and mm-hmm. uh, live blogging and uh, doing video and... Uh, you know, you sort of have to, as as we've talked about. You know, you you've stayed current with technology. You have to be in that game to, to still reach an audience well, and to be part of it. So I'm I'm trying. Okay. Well, Paul Grandall of the Times Union, also author of a number of uh, books on uh, on history, uh, working on a biography of uh, Andy Rooney. I thank you for joining us on the Historians. Have a good day. Thanks, Bob. <laughs>